Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on working with bipolar and depression. Today we're really going to talk about um, working with side effects, increasing treatment compliance, and identifying some of those side effects of medications that might be problematic. We're going to start out by talking about how to differentially diagnose bipolar disorder and depression. And, you know, we're not going to go into that super in-depth because I'm, I'm assuming that y'all have been diagnosing these things for quite a while. We'll identify how to recognize general medical conditions and drugs that may mimic depression or mania because these are some of the side effects, uh, or not side effects, but differential diagnostic issues that we may need to deal with. Um, I've been working, golly, working on 25 years now in uh, community mental health, and there have been far too many cases that I've seen people come in and they have had a diagnosis of bipolar when it's been something completely different. It's been a major depressive disorder with generalized anxiety. It's been um, ADHD. It's been substance-induced uh, symptoms. So we're going to take a look at that just to kind of refresh some of the things that we need to rule out. We'll look at understanding the goals of psychiatric management of bipolar disorder and depression. What is the psychiatrist trying to do? You know, obviously that's different than what we're trying to do. They're trying to stabilize and help this person be able to participate with us. Um, we'll identify bipolar patients at increased risk of suicide, Understand the link between bipolar disorder and substance abuse. Identify key areas of consideration when making a treatment plan decision. Learn about the areas which patients with bipolar disorder and their families may need education. And familiarize ourselves with the most common psychopharmacological interventions for bipolar and depression. So basically, you know, some people, especially if you haven't been working with it for a long time, people, um, when they're diagnosing bipolar in one and two, tend to make it a lot harder than it really is. And this is not a be-all, end-all. But the key defining feature of bipolar 1 is a manic episode. There has to be a manic episode. Bipolar 2, um, and bipolar 1 can have depressive episodes as well. Bipolar 2 um, doesn't ever have a full-blown manic episode. So with patients with bipolar, one of the things that causes problems in diagnosis is, especially if they haven't um, had the 
symptoms for very long, we may not know exactly what's going on. So the first episode can be manic, and that's, you know, that rules bipolar one in right away, um, or hypomanic, mixed or depressive. Uh, so we want to kind of pay attention to what's going on, but we don't want to assume that this is the be-all, end-all. We don't want to assume that this is how the person is going to present forever. So taking that into consideration, and when we're doing our um, clinical history and looking at the course, we want to stay alert to signs of persistent depressive disorder, hypomania, uh, major depressive disorder, anything that might have occurred leading up to that. Um, and, you know, if the person has concurrent substance use, which is not uncommon, uh, we want to make sure that we figure out, you know, are the symptoms the person's reporting from five years ago the result of substances of intoxication, or are they the result of the bipolar disorder? So we want to kind of take a look at that, because we know that, um, and, and the same thing's true when we're diagnosing major depressive disorder. We know that when somebody binges on stimulants for a long time, if they stay revved for a really long time, eventually they're going to crash, and they're going to be sleepy, and they are going to probably have symptoms of depression. So we want to pay attention to that. But is that, you know, is that withdrawal, you know, sort of a protracted withdrawal if you want to look at it that way? Because it takes a while for the brain to kind of get rebalanced if the person has been using cocaine really heavily for a long time or even just over a duration of time, the brain gets used to having that in there. So when it doesn't have the cocaine, the person is going to have a different balance of neurotransmitters than they would had they not been using the cocaine. And it's going to present more like depressive symptoms, most likely for cocaine. For your um, sedatives and your um, benzodiazepines, obviously it's going to look more like anxiety um, and, and maybe a little bit of hypomania, but generally it's more anxiety sort of symptoms that seem to pop up when the person's not using uh, patients may experience several episodes of depression before their semantic episode. So again, we don't want to say that this person has uh, doesn't have bipolar 1 because they've had five episodes of depression and there's no history of mania. We need to be willing to reassess that diagnosis if they eventually have a manic episode. Bipolar 2, as I said, has depressive episodes, but no full-blown mania. They can have hypomania, but no full-blown manic episode. So doing a differential diagnosis, we want to ask about the history of depression accompanied or followed by manic or hypomanic symptoms. So yeah, they can have them together, which is really confusing for the person sometimes. Um, so let's take that clinical history. We want to assess for substance use disorders and other general medical conditions or medications. What else might be going on, and we're going to talk about that in a second, that might cause manic, hypomanic, or um, uh, depressive symptoms. Now, remember, depression is apathy, um, lack of energy, Changing in changes in sleeping patterns, changes in eating patterns, a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. Sometimes it's um, uh, an overabundance of guilt about different things. And with hypomania, as opposed to mania, mania is the person is getting into problems. They tend to be impulsive. They tend to be wide open, um, and they tend to be doing things that are going to cause them some sort of physical, legal, or social 
problems as the result of what they're doing. Hypomania can seem more like somebody who's just really, really excited. Most of the time, hypomania does not require intervention um, unless it, the person says this is causing problems. Most patients really don't want to get rid of hypomania because that's when they feel good. And they feel really good. Um, they, they're, they're driven. They're awake. They're kind of driven like they're driven by a motor instead of feeling like they have these cycles all the time. Um, so we want to pay attention to what symptoms are there. Now, hypomanic symptoms can look a lot like ADHD symptoms. They can look somewhat like euthymia, the feeling of relief and brightening when depression starts to lift. So we need to figure out by talking to the person exactly what's going on. General medical conditions associated with manic-like symptoms can include multiple sclerosis, lesions closely linked to the limbic system. You know, those are probably your worst-case scenarios. Hyper or hypothyroid. Now, um, manic symptoms is going to be hyperthyroid. Hyper is going to rev them up. Hypothyroid is going to look more like depression. Um, but being aware of that, and if the person's thyroid levels are fluctuating for some reason, then they may present sometimes a little hypomanic, sometimes a little depressed. That doesn't happen that often. Um, what usually causes that is when they're trying to get the um, thyroid medications kind of stabilized. But paying attention. Head injuries. Anything that damages the brain can cause manic-like symptoms. It can cause a whole lot of other stuff, too. Uh, so we want to assess, you know, when this happened. Maybe the person's felt this way for a long time, and but they played football in high school, or they were a boxer, or they were in a car accident when they were 26, and since then, they've had depressive episodes. Well, we want to look at what's going on there that... And, and see if there's something else that might be causing that um, depression. See if there's some other kind of intervention that might be more helpful. And encephalitis. This is one we don't talk about a lot. And my farrier's wife actually just recently recovered from a bout of encephalitis. And it was something I didn't even think people got anymore. But she was bad. She was in the hospital for a long time. She had to have home care for... I think almost six months because it just, it drained her so much. So it is not uncommon um, to see some of these things occasionally pop up. You know, would, would we say that encephalitis is something we see a lot? No. But if somebody's having um, symptoms of confusion, delirium, sudden manic-like symptoms, you know, any change in their cognitive status, we kind of want to look and say what might what might be going on here? What might have triggered this episode? And encephalitis is definitely something that isn't eradicated that we want to rule out. Medications that are associated with manic-like symptoms, L-DOPA. So if they're taking L-DOPA for some reason, then that could cause manic-like symptoms, which means it's probably not bipolar disorder. It's a side effect of the medication working with the physician, making sure that the patient advocates for themselves and says, this is what's going on. And so the physician can decide how to treat it. Corticosteroids. And a lot of people are on uh, corticosteroids for various reasons. And straight up steroids that bodybuilders use. These can also cause manic-like symptoms. High-dose decongestants. It's a stimulant. 
you're taking a stimulant and you're taking a lot of it, it can cause manic-like sim- symptoms. Um, stimulants themselves, weight loss drugs, um, fentramine, those sorts of drugs, as well as even the over ca- over-the-counter drug um, uh, weight loss medications and ADHD medications. So all of those are stimulants. If the person's taking those for some reason, could be a side effect of taking those medications. So you want to look at when did the symptoms start in relation to when you started taking this drug or medication. And antidepressants can trigger a manic episode in people with bipolar disorder. Um, so with bipolar 1 which is really important to understand that if they've got bipolar 1 and maybe they haven't had a full-blown manic episode yet and the doctor prescribes an antidepressant without a mood stabilizer and all of a sudden they start having a full-blown manic episode, maybe with psychotic features, okay, you know, we need to take a look at that. Um, At least we know what triggered the manic episode. Substances can also cause manic-like symptoms, and we're talking more illegal substances here, but they can help the patient self-medicate. Now, think about bipolar disorder for a minute. Think about, you know, a lot of people think bipolar disorder, they go from being depressed to being manic to being depressed like a pendulum. It doesn't happen that way. And in many ways, I think there's thankful for that because that would just be so exhausting to never have a breather from being symptomatic in in either way. But with bipolar disorder, we don't know what episode's going to come next. It's not like you have a depressive, then you have a manic, then you have a depressive, and all nice and tidy. You could have five depressive episodes in a row and then a manic episode or, you know, whatever. So it's hard for the patient to plan um, ahead of time and go, okay, you know, my next episode might look like this. So yada, yada. Um, But it's also one of those things that when it happens, um, patients are often likely to try to self-medicate, to try to make it better when they start feeling depressed, especially if they haven't been diagnosed yet. Um, But even after they have been diagnosed, a lot of patients will tell you, and, you know, please chime in if you've heard the same thing from your clients, that the medications, the mood stabilizers and the atypical antipsychotics that some patients are prescribed make them feel so flat that they want to feel something. Um, I had one patient that was uh, on on Buspirone, and she said, I can't take that. When I take that, I have no feeling at all. I don't feel happy. I don't feel sad. I just don't feel. And I'm, okay. Um, And so she worked with her psychiatrist on that one. I've had other patients who, while the mood stabilizer um, helped, you know, so they weren't having those ups and downs, they missed the ups so much. They were often non-compliant with treatment. And then some would get creative, and I'm not advocating for this because it's extraordinarily dangerous, Um, but they would take their mood stabilizer, but then they would add stimulants on top of it to try to get a little bit of a rush or a little bit of a, not even a high, but a, I'm feeling really good today. You know, something above that kind of, it's okay. You know, some, some excitement, some enthusiasm. So some things we may see people experiment with, cocaine, methamphetamines, amphetamines, ephedrine. Yes, you can still get ephedrine. Um, It was banned in certain sports supplements, but you can still order it directly offline. Um, Ecstasy, MDMA, 
you know, whatever you want to call it, and caffeine. Obviously, a cup of coffee, not going to do it. And if you look at your um, energy drinks, they actually don't have that much caffeine in them compared to like Starbucks or something. But it's the other stuff that's in there that combines and it synergistically works with the caffeine to give the person the rush. So I would add to this really paying attention to how much, how many energy drinks people are using. I've had people um, in early recovery who, you know, they're not using their drug of choice. They're not using the cocaine anymore um, or, the, or the methamphetamine, but they just can't wake up and they feel so slow and they're just pounding back red bulls or whatever some of the other ones are called um so we have to talk about you know how that's interacting with their medication how it affects their recovery what it's doing to their mood and in most cases they don't see a problem with it they don't see a problem with their mood because they're finally feeling brighter and cheerier and so convincing them to go easy on the on the energy drinks typically is difficult. Um, so at that point, working with the physician, working with the psychiatrist to figure out how can we help this person get some more energy, providing education about, you know, what can you do to help your body recover so you can start feeling brighter and you don't need to rely on back-to-back energy drinks, which get expensive. Patients with bipolar often seek treatment during depressive episodes. In a manic episode, a full-blown manic episode, they're not really thinking about the consequences at all. In a hypomanic episode, like I said, the person feels really stinking good. And it's not, it generally doesn't cause problems. People in a hypomanic episode may talk a lot. They may be really enthusiastic. They may have a decreased need for sleep, you know, very similar to manic without the extreme, not going to the extreme levels. So. A lot of times they're not going to volunteer information about these manic or hypomanic episodes because in contrast to the depression, oh my gosh, it is just a vacation. It's wonderful. It's a whirlwind. Um, You know, it can be a negative whirlwind depending on the kind of trouble they get into if it's a a full-blown manic episode. Um, So, And oftentimes they don't see these symptoms, as I said, distressing. So we may need to ask about them. We may need to get this from collateral sources, uh, people they work with, people that they live with may say, you know, one day they seem bright and cheery and gregarious and everything, and then, you know, sometimes they're just depressed as all get out and we can't get them out of bed. And so we want to look at what does bright and cheery look like and, you know, is it causing problems? causing clinically significant distress, to quote the DSM, um, in their life. Because some people get euthymia. They get happy when they finally come out of that depressive episode. So what is, and I don't like the word normal, but what is standard for this person and what level of symptomatology can they handle um, before it starts causing them problems? Completed suicide rates for people with bipolar disorder and major depressive disorder are around 10 to 15%. Suicide attempts associated with depressive episodes or depressive features of mixed episodes tend to be more lethal, if you will. So we want to make sure that when we're meeting with our clients, every meeting, and just kind of do this as a matter of course when you're meeting with your clients, are they, do they have future plans? 
do they are they espousing suicidal or homicidal ideation if they are not bipolar if they are relatively stable on medication you may choose not to actually directly ask them you know are you suicidal or homicidal this week um but you want to look for those key key features are they are they making plans are they um generally seeming okay and happy remember before people commit suicide a lot of times they have a change in their mood where they seem a little bit happier and almost content with things because they've made that decision so don't assume that somebody's improved mood is a sign that okay the danger's passed it's actually most dangerous for people with bipolar disorder when they're coming out of a depressive episode when they finally have enough energy to carry through with the plan so we want to make sure to keep keep an eye on things and document in your progress notes any um, signs that are showing that the patient is doing well and obviously if it you have any indication that they're starting to get depressed starting to have even mild ideation then we want to talk about it and figure out how to address it increased risk factors if they have access to means and you know people do have a preferred method for committing suicide when they get it in their head but in reality people have access to commit suicide all the time so you don't want to say well they said they were going to overdose on XYZ pill they don't have that so we're safe no you know there is traffic outside there are butcher knives in the kitchen and I don't mean to be morbid but when somebody is in that much pain if they decide they are ready to commit suicide they will find the means so don't assume um, the lethality of their method of choice you know if they're talking about overdosing you know you probably have a little bit more time to get to them but you don't want to assume low lethal low lethality in means means low lethality period if there's a family history of suicide we know that there's a potential for increased risk pervasive insomnia so if you've got somebody with or without a family history of suicide but if their sleep starts getting wonky and that's my clinical term y'all love it or hate it whatever um, but as sleep deprivation goes up suicidal ideation and depression can also go up so if they've got pervasive insomnia and they have found that people who wake up in the middle of the night and can't get back to sleep are actually worse off and become more agitated than people who can't fall asleep to begin with um, or people who wake up a little bit earlier in the morning so kind of paying attention to that they start reporting that they're waking up a bunch throughout the night this could be sleep apnea this could be a variety of things let's get it looked at by the doctor um, and I know I refer to the physician a lot, but I think we underutilize physicians in differential diagnosis. Um, impulsiveness. You know, if you've got somebody who's already normally a little bit impulsive, um, you know, they start getting depressed and they're like jumping at the first new drug they hear about and they seem to be not the type of person that thinks things through quite as much, uh, it can be a risk factor. If they have comorbid psychiatric stuff PTSD um, you know obviously if we're working with bipolar then we're dealing with depression and or mania if they've got any cognitive stuff going on so that can imp impair things psychosis obviously um, increases risk because they're not thinking in the same way 
that we are. Personality disorders and lack of social support. So all of these things we want to pay attention to when we're doing our first assessment with the client. When we're doing that, you know, initial meeting and developing our plans and everything, you know, we may not, if the person doesn't have suicidal ideation, we don't want to say, well, if you were going to, then how would you do it? No, but we do want to know if there's a family history of suicide. We want to know how they're sleeping. We'll get an idea about their impulsivity. We're going to diagnose for psychiatric comorbidity and there's level of social support. We want to mitigate any risk factors that we can and enhance any protective factors. If there is social support, well, by all means, let's see if we can get the family or the social supporters, whoever it is, on board and as part of this multidisciplinary treatment team. Let's see if we can have somebody that you can call at 2 in the morning when you wake up instead of pacing the floor alone and getting irritable that you can't go back to sleep. But sometimes patients are going to have to be hospitalized. So we want to look at considering hospitalization for patients who pose a serious threat of harm to themselves if they're severely ill, lack adequate social support, demonstrate significantly impaired judgment, have complicating psychiatric or general medical conditions. Now, so this is general medical thrown in there again. What does that mean? Well, obviously you know what that means, but why are we considering medical conditions? If they've got diabetes, for example, and, you know, they're having difficulty stabilizing their blood sugar, that can affect their cognitive abilities, that can also affect their mood some, um, and their sense of hopelessness and frustration and futility at trying to manage that that blood sugar can sometimes also complicate the picture and make it feel even more overwhelming. My aunt has one of those pumps and it worked great for about 20 years and now even the pump isn't working anymore and it gets very frustrating for her because her blood sugar's like a roller coaster. Uh, so we want to take into consideration chronic pain can be another complicating general medical condition because the person may want to take opiates or the person may not be taking opiates and not be able to sleep because they're in chronic pain. Either way, chronic pain contributes to depression and irritability and in many cases, impulsiveness. I mean, think about when you've had a bad toothache um, and you've just wanted it you've wanted it gone. The dentist could not open fast enough to get that tooth out of your, out of your mouth. Um, you know, somebody who's suffering with extreme depression may be going through something similar. And we're talking about depression here, but some patients who are manic have to be hospitalized too because they are psychotic, because they are not able to make good decisions. They're not able to follow good judgment. Um, and, Again, they may have complicating general medical conditions where they're not going to take care of themselves because they're in this florid manic episode. And, and in order to make sure that they stay alive and healthy, they need to be under medical care. Um, and another consideration is patients who haven't responded adequately to outpatient treatment. So obviously, if outpatient's not working to help the person get stabilized or in this particular episode, then inpatient may be considered. It's important to reevaluate the treatment setting regularly because people change. People with bipolar change more than some other people, especially if they've got rapid cycling. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of different things. And different stressors 
can trigger an exacerbation of, of symptoms. So we don't want to assume that Jane's doing okay in outpatient, you know, she's being seen three times a week right now, but we don't need to put her in, in residential. And then all of a sudden, Jane's grandmother dies. Well, that could be the trigger that makes the depression get worse. So we want to make sure we don't downplay any stressors that may trigger an exacerbation of symptoms. Education. A lot of patients, like I said, even a lot of clinicians, don't really fully conceptualize what bipolar disorder looks like or what major depressive disorder looks like. Um, so we want to make sure that our staff is aware of what it looks like, but we also gradually educate the fam family, giving them a whole bunch of literature and saying, here, this will help you understand it, see you toodles, it's not going to sink in. You want to present it in a gradual, consistent process over the course of the illness. So if the person's in a manic episode, then let's talk about mania. Let's talk about how to deal with these symptoms. Let's talk about what may be triggering it, what could make it worse, yada, yada. When they're in a depressive episode, that's what we're going to talk about. When they're in a remission episode, when they're in an episode where they're not meeting criteria for anything, let's talk about that. A lot of families don't even realize that that's an option. And it is. A lot of clients with bipolar disorder and um, episodic major depressive disorder have periods that can go a year or more without a symptom. Um, now, it doesn't, especially in bipolar, it doesn't generally go for a year or more without any symptoms. But there are significant stretches of time that we want to let the family know that this is normal. You're not missing something. The other shoe's not getting ready to drop. You know, let's look for and be aware of the signs that an episode may be getting ready to occur in your loved one, a manic episode or a um, depressive episode. Because everybody's relapse warning signs look different. So what does it look like in your loved one? And what things may trigger a relapse? You know, relapses in... Depressive episodes are easier to pick up on what might trigger that. You know, if there's a death, if there's a loss, if there's a this, if there's a that. So we want to be aware of those things. But if somebody typically has um, or has a, a history of manic episodes, we want to try to identify what things might trigger that as well. And it can be seasons, it can be hormones, it can be, you know, a variety of things, or it may just be. Um, but helping people feel like they've got a handle on it, like they can see it coming, you know, kind of like the weather forecast. I get up every morning and I check the weather to see what the temperature is going to be so I know what to wear, I know how to prepare. People with bipolar disorder and major depressive disorder need to get up in the morning and check their own personal weather forecast to say, what do I need today and how do I prepare? Am I doing okay? Um, and, and, you know, over time, People can often extend their periods of asymptomatic time. Um, some people like the word remission. I, I don't like that one, but that's just me. Um, but yes, because, I mean, think about it. When you get depressed, um, if it's, we'll say, biochemical depression kicks in for some reason, if you start getting negative and start getting cranky and feeling hopeless and helpless and 
doing things that contribute to that depression and you start eating poorly and not sleeping and just sitting on the couch in the dark all day long and getting your circadian rhythms out of whack, that's going to make that episode extend. That's going to increase the likelihood that your neurotransmitters are going to get even more out of whack. So if we can help people identify ways to deal with the early warning signs and ways to deal with symptoms when they have them, because they may not be able to prevent every major depressive episode, but they can keep themselves or they can shorten the periods. And by learning how to live healthfully and make sure that they're doing everything they can to mitigate and minimize their vulnerabilities, then the likelihood that they're going to be able to extend the periods of symptom-free are a lot greater. You know, if they know that they have to get sleep, it's just imperative to their recovery. If they know that they need to eat something besides pizza and ramen noodles, okay. If they know they can't be drinking two pots of coffee a day, you know, those are all things that, you know, somewhat minor lifestyle changes that can help the body maintain the neurotransmitters which will help the moods stay in whack. It's, like I said, and I don't want people to think that that's going to be do everything for them and prevent future episodes henceforth and forevermore. No, if they've got a chemical imbalance in their brain, that may not do it. But we can reduce the chances that you're going to inadvertently trigger it. Oh, and seasonal affective disorder. It's a huge trigger for a lot of people's depressive episodes. So what can they do? Counselor activities. You were waiting for us to get here. Pre-planning. Help people plan for impairments and functioning, whatever those impairments look like. Hypomanic, manic, depressive, persistent depressive disorder. And a lot of times we minimize per- persistent depressive disorder, which is the old dysthymia if, you know, you're like me and you have difficulty with change. Um, persistent depressive disorder uh, often often gets overlooked because the person is not in bed and unable to move. They're just, and I make it sort of akin to Eeyore. You know, life is not grand. They're just getting along. And there's no highs, there's no lows. It's just kind of flatline. Um, but we need to address that too. If they're feeling that way, if they're just going through the motions and barely getting through the day, how can we help them? Um, How can we help them plan for impairments and functioning if the depression gets worse? Or even when it's like that, how can they cut themselves some slack so they can have the energy to focus on the things that that are important in their life, that give them meaning? We want to assist the patient in scheduling absences from work. Um, Now, this can be what they're referring to in this is when they're symptomatic for some reason. So who can cover for them? Can they work from home? Um, You know, sometimes um, persistent depressive disorder, they can still do some work, but they need reduced work um, duties or something. But I also encourage patients to schedule absences from work, obviously time permitting, you know, if they've got the, the leave time to do it, for their own mental health. They need rest and relaxation. They also need work-life balance. You know, maybe you were out for four months because you had a really bad episode of some sort. Okay, well, you are not going to make up for that in the next three months. So, and and working 12, 14 hours a day to try to get caught up is just going to put you back into a depressive episode. So, helping people figure out how to maintain that work-life balance and not wear themselves back 
down into a, into a relapse. Encourage them to avoid major life changes. Now's probably not the time to quit your job, to, you know, every once in a while it will be. You know, maybe somebody is desperately unhappy in their job and they decide they're going to go back to college and they've got, you know, funding for it or something. And everything goes is going together. That's the exception, not the rule. Ideally, first six to 12 months of recovery until they, you know, feel like they've got their feet on the ground, you want to avoid major life changes. Plan for the needs of children while the patient is in acute state. This is one we often forget about. If a patient has recurrent major depressive episodes, you know, whoever the caregiver is, mom or dad, may not be able to make all the meals and do all the laundry. They're just not able to. Um, So how is that going to happen? How can the meals get made and the laundry get done? Who are the backup people that we rely on? What is the plan? So because if there's no plan, then the parent's probably going to start feeling guilty on top of being depressed and then irritable and angry and resentful and we're just piling negative emotion on negative emotion. So let's plan for, okay, when you're having a depressive episode, let's educate the family about what this looks like why it's happening, and what they can do to help. A lot of times, family is really happy to try to help if they just know what to do. Um, If patients are considering stopping medication in the middle of treatment, and my grandmother was notorious for this, but um, we want to make sure, number one, that they talk it over with their doctor first. You know, put it on the psychiatrist or the physician, but remind them, that medications take a while to get into the brain to get things stabilized. And um, if they quit taking them, then they're going to have to ramp back up again. So let's look at why are you thinking of stopping the medication? Is it too expensive? Is it having unacceptable side effects? Let's talk about that and see if we can find some ways to deal with that. Um, But again, they need to clear it with their doctor first because it can be um, not good for them to just completely DC their medication on their own. Assist the patient who is able to work in contacting vocational rehab. Assist them in linking with case managers and or other services in the community. Um, Sometimes churches will offer some case management services because a lot of times, unless it's a patient with with severe persistent mental illness who happens to have Medicaid, whatever your state calls it, Um, there is no case management available. So where else do we find those types of services? And I've had a lot of luck working with churches. And assist in preventing and mitigating stressors. So let's plan for, you know, let's look over the next week or the next month. Is there anything coming up that could be a big stressor? Let's plan for it. How can we mitigate anything? What can you do to take care of yourself so you can deal with life when it, you know, slaps you on the face? Stressors commonly precede episodes, and disrupted sleep-wake cycles may specifically trigger manic episodes. So, again, just be cognizant. Physical illnesses that cause changes in eating and or dehydration can alter blood plasma levels of medications and may require dose adjustment. So if somebody's got the flu, something to be aware of. We used to see a major spike in um, admissions to our... Crisis Stabilization Unit in the summer in Florida because the people who were homeless and on antipsychotics, their medications would get all out of whack um, because they were sweating so much and they were getting dehydrated. 
So we do want to be aware that what foods they eat and how hydrated they are, and if they suddenly lose a bunch of weight or gain a bunch of weight, it may alter the, the concentration of the medication and the med, meds may, may need to be adjusted. And regular patterns should be promoted, sleeping, eating, exercising, you know, encourage them to get those circadian rhythms working and work with their body instead of against it. When we're talking about medication with severe mania or mixed episodes, a lot of times we're going to see antipsychotics, atypical antipsychotics, valproate, which is Depakote, or lithium. With mild to moderate mania or mixed episodes, a lot of times we'll see antipsychotics, valproate, or lithium. And maybe short-term adjunct treatment with benzodiazepines. A lot of doctors have shied away from that since benzodiazepines can be so addictive. But if you see a benzo in there with an antipsychotic, this could be the reason. Just kind of telling you so you're not surprised when you're looking at the chart. Obviously, we don't prescribe. Mixed episodes. There are certain drugs that are preferred over lithium, and atypical antipsychotics are obviously preferred over typical antipsychotics. Atypical is a newer generation, has less side effects, so obviously people are going to lean towards those. Um, antidepressants may be used earlier for bipolar 2 depression than for bipolar 1. Patients with bipolar 2 have lower rates of antidepressant-induced switching into hypomania, um, and if they've got manic, if they have bipolar 1 and just haven't, just haven't had their first manic episode, um, you know, a antidepressant treatment could trigger that. Antidepressants, regardless of the type of bipolar, may increase mood cycling. So the APA recommends that mood stabilizers are also combined with antidepressants if the doctor feels that the patient needs to be on an antidepressant. ECT can be considered for patients who are severely ill, whose mania or depression is treatment resistant, or who experience symptoms during pregnancy, because um, a lot of the medications can't be taken during pregnancy or breastfeeding. So it's something that some people consider. Goals for treatment from the psychiatrist's point of view are to prevent relapse and recurrence, reduce cycling frequency and subthreshold symptoms, reduce suicide risk, and improve their overall functioning. So, and remember, psychiatrists see these people usually once a month. You know, it's, we see them once, two, three times a week. Um, so we're going to take these goals and we're going to kind of expand on them. But these are the psychiatrist goals. Psychosocial interventions that we can use. We want to look at illness management through helping the person find the best treatment for them, whether it's cognitive behavioral or compassion-focused or experiential or whatever. We want to help them identify triggers for their episodes and try to minimize those as much as possible, and develop skills to deal with triggers that happen. And then we're going to develop a plan for relapse prevention. You know, what can you do to keep yourself healthy? Not just minimizing triggers, but what can you do proactively to stay healthy and happy? We can address interpersonal difficulties, um, coping skills and distress tolerance, cognitive distortion, and wellness behaviors and vulnerability prevention, which, again, is that whole looking at what makes the person more vulnerable. And I tend to expand it past DBT's notion of, you know, sleep, pain, physical health, and nutrition. And I say, what other things make you more vulnerable to depression, for example? So, 
or, or anxiety or, or whatever it is. But we're talking about depression and bipolar here today. Um, and people may say when it starts to come up on a certain holiday, that's a, that's a vulnerability. I'm more likely to be depressed on that holiday. Or when finals week is coming up, I'm more likely to be depressed going into that because I feel like I'm not going to pass my exams or something. So all those things, we want to have people identify. And sometimes you can call those triggers, but whatever you call them, these are things we want to ask so we can help people mitigate that. So when we start coming up on this holiday, what are you going to do to minimize the chances that that holiday is going to trigger an episode? We want to enhance treatment compliance by assessing potential barriers such as lack of motivation, excessive pessimism, side effects of treatment, problems in the therapeutic relationship, and logistical, economic, or cultural barriers. So let's find a good treatment placement for them. And then when it comes, help them develop a therapeutic alliance and and help them deal with the side effects of treatment. But educate them first. Collaborate with the patient to minimize barriers and encourage the patient to articulate concerns about treatment or its side effects and consider the patient's preferences for treatment. Too often, we don't encourage them to give feedback. We say, how are things going? But, you know, it's really important to drive home to them. I can't read your mind. I don't know what it feels like in your skin. So the only way I can help you work with your your thoughts, your emotions, the side effects of your medication is if you tell me. If you tell me, I will, you know, help you as best as I can to minimize those problems. We want to recognize that during the acute phase, depressed patients may be poorly motivated, unduly pessimistic, and may have deficits in memory. Regardless of manic or depression, you know, generally people's memory, that's not there um, because they are not in that uh, wise mind, if you want to take it to a DBT term. They're very emotional and they're kind of all over the place. And the neurotransmitters that are needed for memory consolidation and everything, they're out of whack too. During the maintenance phase, euthymic patients may undervalue the benefit of treatment and focus on the burdens. You know, I'm feeling better, I don't need to come anymore. Or I'm feeling better, I don't need to take this medication anymore. And we want to remind them that when they weren't taking the medication, they didn't feel so good. Now that they're on the medication and it's built up in their system, they're feeling better. So expressing your concerns. Obviously, they're going to do what they're going to do. In patients who prefer complementary and alternative therapies, uh, SAMI or St. John's wort might be considered, although evidence for their efficacy is only modest and there needs to be careful attention to drug-drug interactions because they're since herbs are not standardized in their potency, you run a greater risk of serotonin syndrome and other drug interactions. Bright light therapy may be considered to treat seasonal affective disorder as well as non-seasonal depression because we see in non-seasonal depression, circadian rhythms tend to get out of whack. They tend to get wonky because people are sleepy and they're fatigued and they are just apathetic and don't want to deal with life. They just don't have the energy to do it. So they tend to stay in a dark room, which gets the circadian rhythms out of whack. So bright light therapy can help. One of the things I do with all my clients that have depression, and even the ones who don't, just as a preventative thing, I'm like, get up in the morning at whatever's a reasonable time for you. You know, I'm an early riser, so my time wouldn't be reasonable. But at a reasonable time, and get dressed, 
and then open the, open the blinds. Get some sunlight in the house so your brain knows, hey, it's daytime outside. If you work in a building that has no windows, try to get outside a couple of times a day so your brain goes, hey, it's daytime outside. I remember where I used to work. I would go to work, it would be dark. I would be inside with no windows all day long. And I would leave and it would be dark. And I was like, it, it never gets daylight anymore. And which throws your eating habits off. It throws your sleep habits off. So non-seasonal depression can trigger circadian rhythm changes, you know, or behaviors that trigger circadian rhythm changes. So bright light therapy can be helpful as an adjunct. We want to promote awareness of patterns of activity and sleep. So they realize what they're doing. You know, maybe going to the gym at 8 p.m. isn't the best idea. You know, if they're going to the gym, I'm thrilled. Um, but we want to look at, is it negatively impacting your sleep? Or, on the other hand, is lack of activity keeping you from sleeping well? Work with patients to identify and anticipate, anticipate early signs of relapse and evaluate and manage functional impairments. So functional impairments, remember, are those things that they need to do to function. So when you're depressed, you probably don't want to go shop grocery shopping. So can you stock your pantry with enough soups and other things? So if you have a depressive episode, um, you have healthy foods to eat and you're not ordering in pizza or just going without food because um, you don't feel like getting up and getting dressed. So those side effects that we talk about of some of those medications, bruxism, which is grinding your teeth. Now, sometimes switching medications can help. Um, bruxism is not an uncommon side effect of some antidepressants. However, um, some people need to be on that medication. So a consult with a dentist um, and getting a, a splint is what they call it. I call it a bite plate. It looks kind of like a um, mouth guard, but it's hard plastic. And it keeps them from grinding their teeth down and keeps them, hopefully, from cracking their enamel. Um, activation or sedation. So if the medication activates them, um, for example, Prozac activates some people, they need to take it in the morning. Otherwise, if they take it at night, they have difficulty getting to sleep. Paxil, on the other hand, is an example of one that tends to slow people down. So I know people who take Paxil at night. Um, it's an antidepressant, but the sedation wears off enough by the next morning that they feel good for them. Um, on that medication. It's the right medication for them. They just need to alter when they take it. If they have headaches, we want to assess the etiology of those headaches. If the headaches are caused by grinding your teeth, then they need to look at treatment for the bruxism. And it does help a lot. I grind my teeth. I've always ground my teeth. Um, and, and the splints do help a lot. If there's something else that's causing the headache, some people get tension headaches, some people have migraines, um, and sometimes medications, psychotropic medications, can make um, headaches more frequent and or worse. Medications for migraine treatment called triptans and SSRIs both increase brain chemical serotonin. Serotonin syndrome, which causes flushing, rapid heart rate, and headache, can occur if these medications are taken together. Now, does it mean it never happens? Probably not. But serotonin syndrome is life-threatening, can be life-threatening. Um, so it's important to recognize that if you have a client who is 
taking migraine medication and taking um, an antidepressant, make sure their doctor knows that they're taking that and they're not seeing two different physicians. Nausea. Uh, okay, so if taking 100 milligrams of Zoloft at one sitting it makes, makes them nauseous, maybe they can take half in the morning and half in the evening. All of these decisions about how to deal with medication side effects need to be done through their prescribing physician. Um, but these are things we can let them know that there are options. Administer with food. You know, sometimes, I know I can't take a, a multivitamin if, on an empty stomach, um, but if I take it with food, it doesn't bother me. Weight gain. Why are they gaining weight? Are they gaining their energy back and they're, you know, gaining a little bit gaining a little bit of weight? Are they eating out of stress? Um, what might be causing the weight gain? Or are they just hungry all the time? Some medications like Remeron, for example, um, tend to increase people's appetite. And if that's the case, um, and some other medications tend to slow people down and make them feel so tired that their activity level goes down, so their weight goes up. So we want to look at what's causing the weight gain. What can they do? Do they need to exercise more? Do we need to consider um, additional medications to treat the side effects? Do they need to consider switching medications? Bupropion has been found to be an antidepressant that works really well and doesn't have the side effect of weight gain. But you can't use it in people with a history of eating disorders because they have a much higher risk of having a seizure on the medication. So, you know, it's an option, but it's not an option for everybody. Sexual side effects. Bupropion, again, um, uh, is a norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor. There's no serotonin mentioned in there. Um, so the side effects that are common, commonly seen with SSRIs are not as pronounced in people who take um, an NDRI. It's an option if the person doesn't have a history of an eating disorder. And mirtazapine, or Remeron, is an atypical antidepressant that typically increases appetite. So sometimes we'll work with people who are depressed and they just have no appetite, they're not wanting to eat, and Remeron can help. I've seen um, Remeron prescribed a lot in places where older adults are living and dealing with depression because it increases their appetite, and a lot of times older adults lose their appetite. Dry mouth, encourage people to suck on hard candy, um, chew gum, carry a water bottle with them. Suicidal ideation, obviously you need to institute a suicide intervention protocol. Sleep disturbances can occur, and they may go away as the medication levels level out, but they can include nightmares, sleepwalking, and easy waking. So it'll be up to the client to talk with their doctor about, you know, if the medication is causing this, do we need to switch medications? Um, or what can they do to, to deal with it? Sometimes it may be a matter of taking the medication in the morning instead of at night. Um, you know, there are different things that the psychiatrist may try. And constipation. Some of these meds upset the belly. So encouraging people to get plenty of fiber, drink plenty of water, and move. You know, if you move your body, then you're going to move your bowels. So increasing their level of activity, even if it's just mild walking, they don't need to go to the gym, can help kind of regulate their system. Encouraging them to have kind of scheduled bathroom breaks, just like we used to do with our kids after a, a meal. We would say, okay, now you need to go try to use the potty or, or whatever. Um, 
training the body that after you eat, you're supposed to go to the bathroom can help um, in some people who are constipated. During the postpartum period, there's an associated increased risk for relapse into mania, depression, and psychosis. And postpartum period um, relapses as high as 50%. Let people be aware of that. So if they have a history, you know, when they're pregnant, know that it may come up so they're educated about it. But it's also important to remember that when someone quits breastfeeding, their hormones do this wonkety-wonk thing again, which can also increase the risk for relapse into mania, depression, or psychosis. So initially having the baby, hormones fluctuate. And then when you quit um, breastfeeding, hormones go through a big fluctuation again. In children and early uh, adolescents, the prevalence of bipolar disorder is only about 1%. Um, an additional 5 to 6% of children have mood symptoms, NOS. Children with bipolar disorder often have mixed mania, rapid cycling, and psychotic features. So you know, mixed mania is you know, some depression and some manic symptoms at the same time. It's often comorbid with attention deficit and conduct disorders. So this mixed mania may also look like ADHD, which is why it's, you know, getting a pediatric psychiatrist involved is definitely helpful. Children and teens having a manic episode may feel very happy or act silly in a way that's unusual, have a very short temper, talk really, really fast about a lot of different things, have trouble sleeping but not feel tired, have trouble staying focused, talk and think about sex more often, and do risky things. Now, when you're reading that, you may be reading it going, it sounds like a teenager to me. And most teens have some or all of these symptoms occasionally. Um, I think a lot of people have some or all of these symptoms occasionally. So we want to look at what is baseline for that person and are the symptoms causing them clinically significant impairment. Um, if all of these are present, and, and for an extended period of time, then we want to start looking at what's the diagnosis. Are we looking at ADHD or bipolar or anxiety? Because anxiety can present very similar to this in children and adolescents as well. Children and teens having a depressive episode may feel very sad, complain ab about pain a lot, like stomach aches and headaches. So they may somaticize a lot of their complaints. Sleep too little or too much. And again, you know, sometimes my son will sleep until 10 in the morning, and I'm like, how can you do that? I just don't understand. Um, but, you know, what's normal for that child? They may feel guilty and worthless. They may change their eating habits, have little energy and no interest in fun activities, things they thought were fun. And they may think about death or suicide. Keeping that door open to talk about things. The big key for a lot of parents is... Noticing the somatic symptoms, if they start complaining about a lot of stomach aches, headaches, just not wanting to do things, it's generally a clue that something is going on. In patients over 65, the prevalence of bipolar disorder ranged from 0.1% to 0.4%, but most manic symptoms in the elderly are due to general medical conditions or medications, not bipolar disorder. So we want to get them to their physician to figure out what might be triggering these symptoms. Bipolar can be diagnosed in children, adults, and the elderly. A wide range of medications is effective in treatment, and psychosocial interventions need to focus on minimizing stress and increasing routines.
Are there any other questions? Great questions throughout the presentation. I appreciated that. If you're not familiar, the National Institute of Mental Health and um, SAMHSA both have free publications that you can get mailed to you. They're really nice printed publications, handouts that you can give patients. A lot of them are also in Spanish if you work with a Hispanic population that can help them start getting some of that gradual education. Alrighty, everybody, have an amazing day, and I will see you tomorrow. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe either in your podcast player or on YouTube. You can attend and participate in our live webinars with Dr. Snipes by subscribing at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. This episode has been brought to you in part by allceus.com, providing 24-7 multimedia continuing education and pre-certification training to counselors, therapists, and nurses since 2006. Use coupon code counselor toolbox to get a 20% discount off your order this month.